Well, turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 9. Uh, last week we covered the first half of chapter 9, and then uh, today we're going to cover the second half of chapter 9 as part of our year-long series through the book of Romans. And Romans 9 is about, as we saw last week, it's about God's sovereignty over even salvation. It's about the doctrine of election. And, uh, and I know that that doctrine, of course, sparks a lot of uh, questions and confusion and, and even angst on some level. I had barely uh, said amen after my sermon last week and gotten down to my seat in the front row and I'd already started to get texts from you. And, uh, and it was all good stuff. It was all very encouraging, very thoughtful questions. And I know, as I mentioned last week, I know this is, this is difficult. Uh, this is hard stuff. And if you're struggling with it, that's okay. In fact, that's actually really good if you're willing to wrestle, you're willing to look at the scriptures and see uh, what's in there. And we know that it's not easy, but we know that election is in the Bible. It's, it's in there for our comfort. It's in there for our worship. It's in there to enlarge our vision of who God is. So we talk about it and we deal with it from the text. And, and, and by the way, if, if this is your third week with us, if you're that new, you may think all these people ever talk about is election. Uh, but that just happens to be you know, where we are in the text. We were in the last part of Romans 8, and then now we're in the second half of Romans 9. So we just kind of deal with what comes up in the text, and we look to uh, see how it points us to Christ, and then how it applies to uh, our lives every day. And um, again, that's our practice. We work our way through books of the Bible. We don't censor the Bible. We let the Bible speak and that we humble ourselves under it. Now, since we may have folks who are new or maybe never thought about election or, or maybe had heard some things about election but really didn't know exactly, let me just uh, remind you what we're talking about by way of a definition. This is modified, really, from J.I. Packer's definition. But the doctrine of election is the Bible's teaching that before God created the world, he chose out of the human race those he would bring to saving faith, justify and adopt into his family, not because of any foreseen faith, or goodness in them. So anyone who is saved is saved because God chose them out of love, based entirely on his mercy and his sovereign grace. Now, one of the most dangerous statements that we can make as Christians goes something like this. I can't believe in a God who would fill in the blank. I can't worship a God who would dot, dot, dot. We come across something in the Bible we don't like, and we say, well, I just can't believe in a God who would do that. Or, or I can't believe in a God who would predestine some to be saved and not others. And what makes us so dangerous, of course, among other things, is we end up dictating to God the kind of God he is allowed to be in order to secure our worship. And not only is this, of course, you know, even as I say that, we sense just how arrogant that is. But it's also a kind of emotional blackmail, really, trying to blackmail God. We say, if you want me to worship you, if you want me to believe in you, if you really want me to accept you, you have to be a certain way. And if you're not the way that I want you to be, then frankly, I'm just not that interested in you. Now, I've never heard anyone say that that directly, uh, but that's sometimes how we approach the God of the Bible, because the doctrine of election, you know, among others, a difficult doctrine, and it causes thoughts and objections. And, and one of the things that Paul will do in the last half of Romans 9 
is he anticipates the objections of the recipients of this letter. And one objection he's, he has anticipated, which is one that is asked, I think, probably every time Romans 9 is preached, and that is, well, isn't that unfair? Isn't this unfair? Or to say it even more directly, if God chooses to, send, uh, to save some people and not others, doesn't that make God unjust? This morning, the flow of the message will follow the flow of the text, and so what I'm going to do is provide answers to three questions that actually Paul answers in the text. The first one is, is God unfair? The second one, who's to blame for uh, rejecting God? So if someone rejects God, who's to blame for that? And then third, why doesn't God choose everyone? So Romans 9, uh, we'll cover from vor- verse 14 through verse 29. Here reads the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Now, I want to pause there for just a minute, because um, there's the question. There's, there's one of the questions. There's the, the real visceral objection that the Apostle Paul anticipates. He just said in the previous section that in order that, his, that God's purpose of election might continue, not be established, but continue, God uh, loved Jacob and he hated Esau. We saw last week that That's just talking about God chose as priority Jacob over Esau. And so that then will beg the question, and and maybe we've asked it, maybe you've asked it yourself, and, well, wait a second, if God chose somebody, not someone else, like, isn't that unfair? Um, This is, again, what Paul will anticipate, and and, um, the one that he'll answer here in just a moment, but just, just by the way, also I mentioned this last week, that people who have wanted to or tried to uh, kind of get around the doctrine of election, going all the way back, well, really the 4th century of Pelagius, but then the 16th century of Jacob Arminius, uh, they say, well, God looks down the corridors of time, and he sees who would choose him, and and then he chooses them, um, which I pointed out last week is not really God choosing, but God simply affirming someone else's choice. But here, The objection that Paul anticipates, and this is really important, it's further evidence that this is not what God does. God doesn't look down the the corridors of time and see who would choose him and then choose them. And this objection actually makes that clear because if that's what God did, I mean, who would really object to that? Who would object to the fact that God looks down and sees who would choose him and then he chooses them? That's not really that objectionable. That wouldn't make... No one would accuse God of being unfair. They might just say he's very observant. Why would anybody call that unfair? Right? If that's the case, God is just good at identifying people who would receive him. But because that's not what Paul is talking about, because that's not what God does, he anticipates this very passionate objection. I love the way one theologian comments. He writes, the mere fact that Paul predicts this objection indicates that he's teaching unconditional election. That is to say, God chooses people not based on anything good in them or any foreseen faith. After all, how often does the Arminian teaching of conditional election based on foreseen faith provoke such a response? In other words, again, no one's going to question the fairness of God if God just chooses people who are already going to choose him anyway. No one's going to say that that's unfair. No one's going to say that's unjust. But that's not what God does. God chooses based, God's choice has nothing to do with the individual at all. Nothing that person has done, nothing that person will ever do, not even any sort of 
uh, perceived or foreseen faith on his part. It's just based purely on God's sovereign grace and God's sovereign mercy. Now, Paul goes on to explain. Look at verses 15 through 18. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now the broader context of this is of that particular statement is very important. So you go back to um, Moses and Moses dealing with the Israelites, and Moses is having this incredible very unique encounter with the living God, and God will speak to Moses, and, and God will give Moses the two tablets on which uh, were written the, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. Well, while Moses is meeting with God, again, this very unique situation, the people of Israel, or he's, Moses is with God on the mountain, the people of Israel are down at the bottom of the mountain, and they're sort of casting all of the gold they can find into a pot in order to make a golden calf that they will worship. This then will be their God. Well, God, of course, knows what's going on. He, he sees this. He sees everything. And so he sends Moses down to deal with it. In Exodus 32, 7, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, now listen to this, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. Now Moses, he won't accept that. So Moses then, a couple of verses later, says, but it says, but Moses said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and mighty hands? Kind of like we do as parents, you know, when, when one of your kids acts up and, you know, you say to your, your spouse, you say, look, go get your son, right? And then, you say, and then she says, well, that's your son. Well, so God and Moses are having this back and forth and no one, it seems, wants to take credit for these people. Now, a few verses later, God will double down. We read, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people you brought out of Egypt, the land of Egypt. Now, what does this have to do with Romans 9? Well, after Moses and God have this exchange, this, this argument, so to speak, as to whom the people of Israel belong, Moses says to the Lord, okay, look, okay. And he kind of concedes a little bit. He says, you've told me to lead these people. You've called me to be the leader of these people but I don't really know you that well. And I don't know what to say about you when people ask about you. And then he says something absolutely scandalous. He says, please show me your glory. It's an outrageous quest, a request to be sure, but God obliges and he covers Moses' eyes because no one can look at God's glory and still live. And then the Lord says, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's this statement that Paul quotes in Romans 9. Why? Because Moses says, look, just tell me, Lord, who you really are. Tell me who you are at your essence. Tell me if I were to just know one thing, the most important thing about you. Just tell me who you are. And what does God say? He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will be gracious to whomever I choose. This speaks to 
the aspect of God that we might say is at the very heart of his character. He is gracious. He is merciful. Regardless of our perceptions of fairness or equity, God is a God of mercy. But as God, he has the right to choose the objects of his mercy. In fact, mercy is by definition an undeserved pardon for an offense. No one deserves it. Mercy is not owed to anyone, um, or it wouldn't be mercy. It would just be an obligation. So So to the objection, if God gives salvation to some and not others, isn't that unfair? A question to ask in return is, does God owe salvation to anyone? Can anyone say, rightly claim of God, you owe me this? The answer, of course, is no. So the fact that God gives salvation to some means that he has done more than what anyone deserved. And to realize that God has given salvation to countless people over the generations just shows that God is merciful. So here's our first point, kind of the answer to the question. The fact that God saves anyone let alone millions of sinners from every tongue, tribe, and nation, is a testimony to his immeasurable mercy. God doesn't have to save anybody. God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. God says, I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. This is God's prerogative. He's not required to save anyone. If he didn't save anyone, you realize if he didn't save anyone, he would still be completely just in everything he does. He owes no one anything, and because he is God, he has every right, so to speak, the freedom to save whomever he chooses. And for reasons known only to God, and, and I, I sparked a little bit of, I wouldn't say controversy, but some questions when I said, yeah, God, there are reasons. In other words, it's not arbitrary, which I'll, I'll explain more in a minute, but there are reasons that have nothing to do with the objects of his salvation. God chooses to save some and not others. So when we ask naturally, why, why this person and not that person? Why, why my aunt, but not my uncle? Why my mom, but, what my da- but not my dad? Of course, we have no idea what God's going to do. If that person is still alive, God still could bring that person to saving faith. But nevertheless, that is a completely understandable question. And typically comes from a heart that is burdened, you know, naturally and understandably burdened. It's not a bad question, but I think a better question, really the question that we have to ask given what we've seen of God is not why would God save this person, not this person, but why does God save anybody? The holy, transcendent, majestic, perfect, righteous God. Why does he save anyone? And furthermore, it brings us to worship. We say, God, I praise you and I thank you. And everything I have is yours because you saved me when I didn't deserve it. Paul makes it clear in verse 16 that our salvation has nothing to do with human will or exertion. has nothing to do with us at all. Not our desire, our effort, our good works, again, or any anticipated faith. It is entirely of the Lord. God saves who he wants to save. But does he condemn some people before they're even born? So far, Paul has brought up Moses the great leader of the Israelite people, and now he will bring up Pharaoh, the great enemy of God's people. So look at verses 17 18 again. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And then we read the next verse. We say, what? And he hardens whomever he wills. Paul makes it clear that that God hardens those he wills. But what do we make of this? Well, okay, so six times in the book of Exodus, we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Six times. I will give you every single example. Let me just give you one. Exodus 10, 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Six times. You can't get around it. But we're also told six times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Let me just show you one. Exodus 8. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So to the question, did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? You know the answer, right? It's yes. That's the answer. Now, some of you knew that was coming, and you're not at all comforted by that. I'm going to explain more. Um, when we think about Pharaoh, so let's start with this. When we think about Pharaoh, don't think um, innocent, nice, righteous, friendly, kind of good, good guy overall. Pharaoh was evil. He was a slave trader. He was a ruthless uh, ruler. It wasn't as though God kind of got into his mind and, and turned him in a different direction. One of my kids um, played Pharaoh one year in the church, the children's program. I think he was six at the time. And, and you, you, there's no way to watch that when he's six-year-old and not think, I mean, how cute is Pharaoh right now? Um, but just could not, I mean, he's so cute. Uh, but don't think of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was no cutie pie, okay? Uh, he was a maniacal and wicked leader who sought to wipe out an entire people group, the Israelites. God didn't turn him into a person that he never was before. God simply allowed Pharaoh to digress into the fullness of his own evil heart. This is a practical example of what Paul warned about in Romans 1, God giving people over to their own lusts and selfish desires. Uh, Tim Keller explains it well, I think. He writes, when God hardens someone, he doesn't create the hardness. He simply allows the person to go his or her own way. God hardens those he wants to harden, and those he hardens want to be hardened. Paul's making much of God's mercy by contrasting with God's hardening. See, mercy takes into consideration all the sin, all the rebellion, all of the evil, and what mercy says is, I'm going to pardon you even though you don't deserve it. Now, on the flip side, with the hardening, it also takes into consideration all the rebellion, all the disobedience, all the evil, and so on. And what it does is it just pulls back and allows that wickedness to reach full bloom. Every single one of us has sinned against God in a thousand ways. Uh, He, and for those who trust in Christ, for anyone who repents and believes, God issues a pardon, right? That's mercy. For those who believe, God pours out his wrath on Jesus Christ instead of us on the cross. So when we believe in Jesus, when we trust in Jesus as this real uh, person who lived a completely obedient and sinless life and died a brutal death on a cross and was raised again, when we trust in Jesus uh, as the sacrifice for our sin, 
God then pardons us for all of our offenses. So mercy takes all of that into consideration. And again, God's hardening does as well, only it pulls back and it allows that evil to reach again full bloom. So there aren't good people and bad people in consideration. It's it's all bad people. But on some, God shows mercy, and on others, God releases them to their own desires. Why mercy for some and a hardening for others? God's sovereign grace. That's the only answer. Renowned uh, scholar John Murray writes, sovereignty, pure and simple, is the only reason for the differentiation. It has nothing to do with us. Now keep that in mind as we read this next section, verses 19 through 23. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right to make, or over the clay, to make uh, out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So again, Paul, so you see what he's doing here. He's anticipating these objections. He's answering the objections. Only for this one, he doesn't really give any sort of logical uh, explanation he doesn't really break it down you know, in any sort of way. Um, he basically says to the question, uh, you, will you say to me, why does he still find fault? He says, well, who are you to talk back to God? So he doesn't kind of get into any sort of, again, logical flow here. He, he says, who are you to get to talk back to God? It's kind of like, it's a bit like a mic drop moment. It's a reminder that God is the supreme creator. He is the ruler. He's the sustainer over all the earth. He's the king of the universe. And having said that, do we, as the ones who are created, determine what God should do? Or does God determine what he should do? And then he gives this pottery analogy. Uh, One of the first, I think it was actually the first date that I ever went on, like, you know, real official date, you drive and you you pick up a young lady, and it wasn't with Janine, so I'm going to tread lightly here, but um, I'm sure it was miserable. It was a miserable time. Um, (laughs) But this girl and I went out to uh, Fazoli's. You ever heard of Fazoli's? It's, it's basically like an Italian waffle house. I mean, it's like, it's about, you know, it's not super high class, but that's where we went. And, uh, you know, I was working at Finish Line. I didn't have a lot of money. And so we went to, we went to Fazoli's and then we went to see the movie Ghost. This is 1990. And there's a scene in this movie, again, miserable movie, horrible time. Um, but there's a scene in this movie where Patrick, Sway- Patrick Swayze's character and Demi Moore's character, they're sitting at this, uh, s- this pottery station with a s- spinning piece of clay. It's actually referred to as the greatest pottery scene in cinema history, which I'm not sure if that's the case or not. But, um, and as the clay is spinning on the wheel, Demi Moore's character kind of clumsily puts a little bit too much pressure on the clay, on, on the vase that's being created, and the whole thing just collapses into this... Um, this formless lump. Uh, they both g- giggle cutely at each other and stare into each other's eyes. And none of that was going on that night with us. Um, but what's made clear in that scene is that the clay is completely at the hands of the potter. 
and the potter does whatever he or she wants with the clay, in, in real clay, and just one little movement, one little adjustment, and everything uh, is turned upside down. Beyond that, of course, we see that, that the prerogative that the potter has, again, to, to make out of the clay anything he or she wants. So what Paul makes clear is that it would be so foolish, in fact, unthinkably foolish, to imagine a scenario where a piece of clay on a spinning wheel looks up with disgust and says to the potter, what are you doing here? Why are you making me this way? Now, the potter makes of the clay whatever he wants. And Paul's argument is, can God not make of the same clay different vessels? God's the potter. We're the clay. The clay is powerless. The clay is completely at the whim of the potter. Now, look at verses 22 and 23. These are hard verses. I just read them, but... I want to review that. So what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So the question is, does God create people just to send them to hell? I mean, that's that's really the question. Uh, Just to torment them eternally. As Paul has already established by the potter and clay analogy, God would have every right to do that because he is God. He can do that. But is that what the text says? Well, there are plenty of well-respected theologians and many that I read in reference to say that's what's being said here. That's, That's unavoidably what's being said here, that God creates some people just for condemnation. And then there are plenty of other I think, well-respected theologians and scholars who, who don't believe that's the case. Now, I actually fall into the latter category, and let me tell you why. Notice the language. Concerning the vessels of wrath, Paul simply says, they are prepared for destruction. Passive voice. Paul doesn't say by whom. But with the vessels of mercy, Paul says that he has prepared beforehand for glory. Active voice. God is the one who prepared the vessels of mercy for glory. So one is in the passive voice, one is in the active voice, and sure, you know, we can make too much of that, but I don't think, Paul's, Paul's not saying, it would, be, it would be making too much of it to say that Paul's saying that God has nothing to do with the fate of the non-elect. He's not saying that. But Paul doesn't stand beho- behind both destinies in the same way, it seems. We might say that God is especially active in saving his own. The ones who are prepared for destruction have prepared themselves for their own destiny by their hard-heartedness and refusal to repent and believe the gospel. Those who are prepared for mercy have been prepared so by God for glory simply because of his grace. So here's our second point. All who end up in hell have only themselves to blame. All who are saved from hell and God's wrath have only God to credit and praise. See, hell is not populated by people who want to be saved and want to trust in Jesus, but God is sort of giving them the stiff arm and saying, no, that's that's not for you. There's nobody in hell who earnestly wants to be saved. There's nobody in hell who has ever cried out to God 
in saving faith and, and cried out for Jesus to Jesus for forgiveness. That's just not how, not how it works. Um, the opposite is true. Hell is filled with those who have rebelled against God, have refused to repent and believe, and who are literally hell-bent on living according to their own rules and according to their own authority. Now, I, I used this picture in Capshaw Academy last year, but I, I thought it was helpful. So for many people, here's what come to, comes to mind when they think about election. So let me show you. So it's God up in heaven, and he's saying, okay, let's see, you go to heaven, and let's see, you go to hell. And you go to heaven, and wait, no, you go to hell. That's the way people think, that God's just sort of arbitrarily heaven, hell, heaven, hell. But that's actually not. The reality is there's only one bucket. Let me show you a different image. And every person who's ever lived is actually headed toward that bucket. And you notice it's a subtle thing if you're into art. But God's not up there casting. So even that is a little bit inaccurate because everybody who's in hell is actually not cascading downward apart from their own will as much as marching defiantly toward hell. Those who end up in hell are there because that's what they insisted on. They want to be free from God's authority, at least temporarily. They want to live lives according to their own rules and their own uh, righteousness. And from that mass of people... That mass of rebels, God, by his saving grace, chooses to save some. Uh, The late D. James Kennedy uses an illustration. It's it's, kind of well-worn, but I don't know if you've heard it or not. I thought it was really helpful. He says, say you have five people, and they're planning to hold up and rob a bank. And this is D. James Kennedy saying, he said, and they're friends of mine. They're all five friends of mine. Well, I find out about it, and I plead with them. I beg them. I urge them, don't do this. There's so much at risk here. There's so much harm that can be caused. And he says, I beg them, and they won't listen. Finally, they push me out of the way, and they head out to rob this bank. But he says, I tackle the weakest-looking one, and I wrestle him to the ground. And the other four, they go ahead and they rob the bank. And in the process, things really go haywire. They kill two guards and two civilians. They're captured, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. But the man who was not involved in the robbery, of course, the one that D. James Kennedy said, I tackled, he goes free. So he's free. Now, Kennedy asked the question, whose fault was it that the other men were arrested and sentenced? He says, can they blame me? They can't blame me. I... No, can't blame me. Um, Can they say um, that anyone else is at fault? No. And then he says, what about the other man who's now free? Can he say, well, because my heart was so good and I resisted the temptation, I'm free. No, the only reason he's free, Kennedy says, is because of me. I restrained him. And he says, so it is that those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. Those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. And thus we see that salvation is all of grace from its beginning to end. So again, those who are in hell are there because they will not repent of their sins and turn from their own uh, independence and trust in the finished work of Jesus. And let me say this before I go any further. Um, If you've not repented and believed in Christ, that is the fate that awaits you unless you repent and believe.
And if you decide you will not repent and believe and turn and surrender to Jesus Christ, then that's going to be on you and not on God. Now, the natural response, though, is, of course, well, why wouldn't God save everybody? I mean, he can, so why wouldn't he save everybody? Paul says in verse 23, he saves some in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. In other words, somehow and in some way, God's choice to save some and not others makes his glory most beautifully known. And this was a question I mentioned. I hadn't got down to my seat yet, and I already got at least one text. And we get in the car on the way home, and my, my 17-year-old daughter, that was her first question. She said, Dad, I, I don't get it. Why, why wouldn't God save everybody? Why doesn't God save everybody if he can? And the answer is, by snatching some from eternal damnation, something of God's glory and character and mercy will become better known. Now, just in case you're wondering, as someone asked me last week, well, how do I know if I'm the elect? Actually, it was more, more direct than that. It was, am I, an, am I elect? So, well, of course, I don't have any inside scoop on that. But the answer is, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you, have you turned from yourself, your sin, and put your faith in Jesus Christ? Then yes, yes, you are elect. The fact that you've repented and believed on Jesus means that God chose you and brought you to saving faith at the moment that he so desired. You say, well, if it's all about the elect and the non-elect, why should I share the gospel? Okay, that's actually chapter 10, so we're going to get to that. But the question is never, this is important too, the question is never, will God receive those who cry out to him in repentance faith? That's never the question. Because the answer to that is always an emphatic yes. God always receives those who call in the name of the Lord. In fact, that's Romans 10. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus will be saved. The question is not, you know, will God receive somebody who cries out in repentant faith? The question is, how will anyone repent and believe apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit? And the answer to that is only by God's sovereign grace. So let's wrap up this chapter, verses 24 through 29. Uh, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So here Paul returns to the initial question that prompted so much of Romans 9. Why do some Jewish folks receive Christ and others don't? And he answers by saying, in essence, God's sovereign plan in Israel's rejection of the Messiah was to open the door, so to speak, for the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Even though the northern, this is, this is going back to a time in a really dark day in Israel, this reference to Hosea. And even though the northern tribes would rebel, of Israel would rebel, Paul then reckons them as Gentiles. They would be received into God's family upon repentance and faith. So that indented section is from Hosea 1 and and. That story there, you, you may recall it, Hosea 
is a prophet of the Lord, and Hosea says, I want you to go out and marry a prostitute. Go find and marry a prostitute, because Israel has prostituted herself out to other gods. And so Isaiah, or so Hosea, he marries a Gomer, a prostitute, and the Lord says, I'm gonna, I want you to give your kids uh, these certain names. I mean, they're horrible, horrible names. And he says, I want you to give uh, one of your uh, children the name, not my people. And another one, not loved. And another one, no mercy. Now, can you imagine, you know, being in first grade and roll is called and it's, you know, Adam, are you here? Adam, are you here? And, and um, okay, where's uh, not my people? You know, how sheepishly, you know, you raise your hand on that one. Or where is not loved? You know, who wants to raise their hand on that? Um, but at the end of Hosea chapter one, God would actually change their names. The one who was called not my people would be instead called my people. And the one who was called not loved would instead be called beloved. And, the, and in the place where they were called, you are not my people, you will be called, he says, sons of the living God. And all this is meant to picture that God has called Gentiles who were not his people to be his people. Gentiles who were, who were not loved in terms of that covenant love into a relationship of love, right? Made to be loved by his own gracious initiative. God has made those to be sons and daughters who were not his sons and daughters. Again, Paul's already established, made it clear that God has mercy on whom he has mercy. God as the creator, the potter, has the right to make vessels for whatever purpose he chooses. And God chooses the most unlikely and undeserving people. And here Paul points out that as God, God is not bound by human expectations, demands, or definitions of fairness. And then almost as a summarizing statement, Paul brings in Israel's history and God's mercy to say this. This is our final point. God is a God of surprising reversals. He tends to do the opposite of what we expect, but always remains true to his faithful character. You know, we think about election, this doctrine, and we think, I mean, how can God do that? But when we consider the whole of Scripture and the glory, the majesty, and the mercy of God, we're left with this. God is always holy. He is always pure in all His ways. He doesn't judge others the way that we judge others. He is infinitely wise and sees the whole picture at once. And He almost never does, frankly, what we would expect Him to. We might expect that given His holiness and the sinfulness of humanity, that he would punish everyone, send everyone to hell, hold everyone accountable for their rebellion. But in a shocking turn of events, at least from our perspective, God sends his son to be punished for what we've done. God calls us to be holy and to live perfect, obedient lives, and yet we fail at every turn. I have failed to do that even today. And yet... He doesn't condemn us. He sends his son to live a perfectly obedient life in our place as our substitute. Talk about a surprising reversal. God sends his son to die on a cross to suffer the father's unbridled wrath so that we could be spared of it and so that we could receive eternal life for all who believe. So as I land the plane this morning, let me just say this. If you're one of those people and maybe you've said to yourself, you know what, I just can't believe in a God who would blank 
I just can't worship a God who would dot, 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 whatever it is. Maybe a better approach is, and maybe the one that God's calling us to this morning is to say, God, help me understand who you are as you have revealed yourself to be. What kind of God are you? Help me understand it and to trust in you. And for those aspects of your character that are different than what I would have expected or even chosen, help me to see them as good because you are good. Let's pray.